he finished his book, he proved forevermore that there are rules for Christian living and some things we're not to do and some things we are to do, and he let Christ and the apostles and the 27 New Testament books prove it. There isn't anything wrong with a standard of righteousness, with calling the Bible a blueprint, with saying there are some rules for Christian living, some things we are to do and some things we're not to do. In 1962, I was privileged to go to Europe for the first time, to Oslo, Norway for a meeting, and to Copenhagen, Denmark, to West Berlin, uh, to uh, Paris and London. And one of the most outstanding days I've ever been privileged to spend was that a uh, day or so I spent in Germany. We went behind the uh, walls that had just been in existence six months then, the walls that separate East and West Berlin, and because I was with Brother Richard Walker, an American who really became a German, he spent over 25 years there, did most of his work in Berlin, I was privileged to go behind the walls and take a picture of Hitler's bunker where he died and under the Linden Tree Street where they goose-stepped and said Heil Hitler and where he made some of his speeches and then to preach that night in West Berlin. I never met a family as dedicated as the Walker family was. They really were devoted to the work. And a few months later when I came back, I got probably the most interesting postal card I've ever received from Brother Walker. He'd gone to Salonika or Salonika, as they now call ancient Thessalonica, and he had a picture of uh, that city in Greece, beautiful city. Uh, and I never will forget that. And every time I come to study uh, these books, I think of that and of the occasion I had to visit with a man who could read Greek better than I could read English. Really a brilliant student. So when we come to First and Second Thessalonians, particularly the last chapter of First Thessalonians, for rules for Christian living, we think about some of those things and the background of this book. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for this golden opportunity, this great occasion to open thy word in studying it. We're thankful for thy revelation of truth and thy providential care in preserving and protecting the scriptures which guide us in this life and by which we'll be judged someday. We're thankful for the great work of the Apostle Paul, who once converted, wrote half the New Testament, who lived so diligently and in such dedication to the cause of Christ, who truly followed Christ as he challenges us to follow Christ. We pray, Father, that our study today will be productive of good, that we'll tune in to the divine frequency and pattern our lives according to the rules of Christian conduct. Help us to be more spiritually minded. Help us to care that there are so many millions lost that we might get the gospel to them, that there can be rejoicing in heaven someday. Forgive us for our apathy in not teaching others, and help us to be alert to the teaching of Christ that one soul is worth more than all the wealth of all the world. Use us to these noble ends. Help us to be more spiritually minded day by day. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he concludes that chapter that introduces the one we're studying today by telling Christians to comfort one another with the words that Christ is coming and we'll meet him in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And though there is sadness in the world and we live in a wicked environment, we're to rejoice in that there's something better and beyond for us. Our study of rules for Christian living really would begin in about verse 12 of chapter 5 
where he begins by telling us to know and esteem and love very highly for their work's sake those who have the rule over us. He's speaking mainly of the elders of the church, for in Hebrews 13, 17, he says, They watch for our souls as those who will give an account in the day of judgment. I do not believe there's a nobler work, a greater work, or a harder work on earth than being an elder in the body of Christ. And we ought to know them and love them, esteem them highly, and pray for them. I notice in many, many public prayers here we do pray for our three elders, the shepherds of the flock, and we should, not only publicly but privately. And each person who's a Christian, every family that makes up this congregation, should do it both publicly and privately, and we should esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. In fact, 1 Timothy 5 says that an elder who does double duty should be supported. And uh, we really appreciate the fact that uh, the elders here care for the truth and for the congregation and for the individual souls. And anyone who would desire to be an elder desires a good work, First Timothy 3, but if a man has to have his arm twisted to be an elder, he can't be an elder because he must desire that work. And really, from the human standpoint, a man would be crazy to desire that work. But when the divine element comes, it's, it adds a dimension. But we should really be found loving, esteeming highly, and praying for the elders of the congregation we're a member of. There's something unhealthy about a congregation that has very many public prayers that omits mention of the shepherds of the flock. And I really and truly have said it before and I'll say it again. I'd rather my two sons be elders in the church of the Lord than to be king of England or president of the United States. I mean that, too. I really mean it. There just can't be any greater work. My old dad was an elder for years. My daddy-in-law was for years. I've seen them both shed tears over the work of the Lord and over brethren who had gone astray and over problems in the church. It is a heart-tugging work. And we ought to train our children to prepare for these noble works, our daughters to marry men who will be elders, our sons to learn the book and learn the work of elders and desire that work. I really wonder where the elders of the next couple of generations are going to come from because we've kind of played with Christianity for two generations now. I remember hearing the story of a teacher who taught little boys and girls, uh, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, the qualifications of elders so they could be prepared. And she had a test one day, and she said, can you remember any of the qualifications for elders? And this one little boy raised his hand and said, he's got to be brainless. <laughs> well, he meant blameless, but sometimes you wonder. But, you know, to have to give answer for the souls of men is something serious. I believe the greatest qualification we need to work toward that would help even out all the others is the one that says apt to teach. My dad said he met a man once that was just as apt to teach one thing as another. Well, that's not what that means. There's only one Greek word translated apt to teach, and it means skilled in teaching. And if a man doesn't know the Bible and can't use it properly, he can't be an elder. I don't care if he's superintendent of schools, president of a bank, a multimillionaire. To be an elder in the church of the Lord, you have to have specific qualifications that go beyond the mundane and secular and external. We need to really develop within our young men a desire to be elders and to qualify themselves because you don't wake up by the process of osmosis overnight becoming an elder. So we're going to have to have better teaching in our Bible classes, better teaching in our homes. We're going to have to show young men what a godly elder looks like and how he acts and how he conducts the work of the Lord. 
And any time we can hold up their hands and thank them and compliment them and pray for them, we've done a good work. Know them, esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. And when you read the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, these are mandates from heaven that we must honor. And we do not elect elders by popular vote, not in the New Testament church. We select them by divine mandate already built into the Bible. The Holy Spirit is still making men elders. Read Acts 20, 28 to 32, through the instruction the Holy Spirit left in the Scriptures. And if a man doesn't qualify biblically, you can't squeeze him in and God accept him. I believe this. I believe every man that is qualified to be an elder ought to be an elder. I'm serious on that. I don't believe we can arbitrarily deny a man being an elder if he's qualified to be an elder because he's qualified by God's standards. It isn't a popularity contest. So we need to really work diligently, and that's the first rule for Christian living he talks about here. Then I want you to notice, uh, beginning in verse 16, he has just with rapid fire some of the simplest and yet profound arguments in all the Bible. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Now what will be the result? And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that's the fullest statement in all the Bible on what Christian living is all about. Sometimes brethren say, well, that despise not prophesying and quench not the Spirit couldn't apply to us today. It does too. And we'll notice how. But let's begin with the first one, rejoice evermore. Some people never rejoice. They're always complaining, murmuring, griping, frowning. But Christians in the midst of severe adversity, Roman persecution, were commanded to rejoice evermore. We're not persecuted. We have the best of everything in the nation where we live and in our surrounding environment, and yet many of us who claim to be Christians seldom ever rejoice. We're grouch heads. We frown a lot. Smile comes kind of hard. George Tipps, who used to preach in this area, told of a true story of going to a funeral home to prepare for a funeral for a lady that afternoon, and he got, a little, got there a little bit earlier and noticed as he viewed the body that she had a terrible frown on her face. He turned to the ones, the undertaker said, can you do a better job than that, preparing her body? The fellow said, she frowned so much in life, the muscles of her jaw were so fixed we couldn't get a smile on her face. Well, sometimes we bend our life in such a direction that even death can't change it. Rejoice evermore. Now let's analyze that a moment. How could they? Hated, despised, persecuted in deep tribulation threatened uh, with death by the Roman authorities, some of them in prison when this was written, still they were commanded to rejoice evermore. Well, let's go back and review that a minute. In the Beatitudes, Jesus built this into, his la into the last Beatitude, and that's the one that's always skipped. I've seldom heard brethren ever get to that last Beatitude. Blessed are you, and the word blessed means happy. Happy are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecute they the prophets which were before you. 
You talk about a paradox, truth standing on its head to gain attention. How can you rejoice when you're persecuted? How can you be happy when you're punished for being a Christian? Remember the company you keep, the prophets of old. Amos has been there. Jeremiah's been there. Hosea's been there. And you'll be lined up with the best company of people you've ever seen with the prophets who were persecuted for righteousness' sake. A lot of times we fail to honor the impressions of the Bible. And then the last page, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 14, 13, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. How can it be happiness to die? It only is if you die in the Lord. With much tribulation they entered the kingdom, Acts 14, 22. They not only were to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake, Philippians 1, 29. If we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. We deny him, he deny us, 2 Timothy 2, 11, 12. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3, 12. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into manifold trials, knowing the proving of your faith worketh patience, James 1, verse 2. Don't be ashamed if you suffer as a Christian. If you're overwhelmed with a fiery trial, glorify God in that name, 1 Peter 4, 16 and 4, 12. See, a different perspective is placed on life if you're a Christian, if you're an ardent, faithful, fruitful Christian. Acts 8, 5 says they went down to Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Three verses later, and there was great joy in that city. He went on his way rejoicing. This man who had traveled by chariot hundreds and hundreds of miles round trip to worship God the way he thought was right. Now he learns about Christianity and who the prophet is of Isaiah 53. He stops the sermon in midair and said, Here's water, what doth enter me to be baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you may. I believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They went down into the water. Philip immersed him. They came up out of the water. And that new Christian went on his way rejoicing. And Philip went to Azotus and Caesarea to make some more people rejoice by preaching Christ again. See, we have a wrong perspective of happiness. We paste a silly grin on our face and pretend we're happy over mundane materialistic things that perish with using. They had no such accommodations, no such possessions in the first century, but they lived and died joyously in Christ. Rejoice evermore. The next time we want to murmur and complain and fuss budget about this and that, little old picky things like a uh, hang nail on your little finger, we ought to think about these Christians who not only were commanded to, but did rejoice in the midst of abject adversity, a rule for Christian living. <coughs> Here's Paul in prison under tyrannical, despotic Nero Caesar. And yet from the midst of the prison, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 4 through 7, uh, jumping a little bit there, but it's all in there. And so rejoice evermore is not just a nice suggestion, a good idea, a passing fancy. It's a direct command, a rule for Christian living. And when we spend our time complaining and murmuring and listing all our problems, we are at counterpurposes with this command. Pray without ceasing. Probably one of the most misunderstood of all short verses in the Bible. These are real, real short, pithy statements like Jesus wept. Remember Lot's wife. These are some of the shortest verses in the Bible, and yet they're full of intent and power. 
How can we pray without ceasing? I know it doesn't mean bow your head and close your eyes 24 hours a day. For those of us driving, that'd be kind of dangerous, especially if someone else is doing that. Uh, does it mean I must pray all the time? If so, then I can't obey some other commands that tell me to study part of the time and teach others part of the time. But we're not making fun of it. We need to explain what that means. I can prove it doesn't mean we must spend all of our time praying. For Jesus is our example. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. We're to follow his steps. 1 Peter 2, 21. And Luke 11, remember this. The first four verses of Luke 11. It says, when Jesus quit praying, he began to teach. So pray without ceasing doesn't mean you can never quit praying. For Jesus quit praying and started teaching. Well, what does this mean? It means never live in such a way that prayer would be out of culture with the life you live. Never be the kind that prays when you're scared or want something, and then at other times you're profane and secular and shallow. Have a prayerful disposition at all times. Be committed to the principle of prayer so that it would never be out of place to thank God for anything. I think one problem that a lot of parents face is they teach their children to be ritualistic, to only pray at certain times, like at bedtime, or three times a day at the table when we eat. How about after you come in from shopping for their school clothes, kneel down there in the living room and pray and thank God you had the funds whereby to buy clothes? In other words, don't be ritualistic and habitual in prayer, but be of a prayerful countenance and disposition at all times. You need to be so prayerful that when your children hear you pray, they don't think you're a hypocrite for praying to the very God you uh, blasphemed earlier. It means to have a consistent, prayerful disposition. I still think one of the greatest stories of this is of the widow's house that burned down in a country community, and the brethren were at the building praying for the widow and her children, and a big knock came on the door, and they opened the door, and there stood about a 20-year-old grown boy, and he said, we're in the midst of a prayer meeting, so what are you doing here? And he said, my Paul's prayers are out in the wagon. And he looked out there, and there was clothes and furniture and replacements for the widow in her burned-out house. We could pray all day and all night for the widow, but somebody's got to help her. So be of a prayerful, useful disposition at all times, but be the kind of person that it would never be out of consistent, it would never be inconsistent for you to break out in prayer. There's something bad wrong with folk that only pray at certain times or under certain circumstances. Let's give a few verses on prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5.16 He that would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips that they speak no guile. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, his ears open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. I think that's a powerful passage. 1 Peter 3, 10 to 12. Here's my favorite one for Christians. 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Uh, Jesus rose up early before it was day and went to a solitary place to pray. Mark 1, 35. He had all power, access to all knowledge, and yet he got up early to pray. Uh, Without me you can do nothing, Jesus said, John 15, verses 4 and 5. So the next day we come up short, guess whose fault it is? We didn't pray. The next bad day we have, we could have avoided that if we'd been those who pray without ceasing. We need to be of a prayerful disposition and inclination in heart and life. And that's something that's very, very important. In everything, give thanks. 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything give thanks. Thankful even for persecution. Why? And make me stronger. Thankful for adversity. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job 13, 15. In Job 30, verse 20, he showed his humanity by saying, I cried unto God and he didn't hear me. But he hadn't read the last chapter of his own book. In 42.12, the last paragraph of Job, we read, God blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. Adversity can draw us nearer to God, can cause us to be more fervent and sincere in our prayer, can cause us to be more sympathetic with others that we overlooked in their distress when we find ourselves in distress. Every cloud has a silver lining. Into each life some rain must fall, some days must be dark and dreary. And some of us are old enough and wiser than we once were. That may not still make me wise, but I am wiser than, I used, than old country boy said I used to was. I look back over my life and think of what I call dark days and black days and hard moments and sad occasions, and they were the stepping stones to a greater usefulness before God and more trust in God. I look back over three or four things I thought in my high school and college days were disasters that probably changed my whole life around for better, only comparing me with me now, not better than anyone else. So our gratefulness, our appreciation for all things should grow. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. It has been good for me to be afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. Psalm 119, verse 67 and 71. So in everything give thanks, for this the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Many of us grew up in the Depression. I was born in 1930, and some people think I started it. Well, it lasted at our house about 1945, longer than most people, but I didn't know we were in a depression because I had the, a mother with the greatest lilting laugh in the world. She made every day a joy. Never shall forget how that I had to learn in a history book we'd been through a depression. But uh, she could be more grateful for more things than anybody ever saw. That was just the pattern of her life. And I appreciate the memory of one that taught me to express appreciation and say thank you. I think we need to go back and uh, teach that ethic to a lot of boys and girls today. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. But back then you thanked God for nearly everything. I remember I had a sister that uh, when she was uh, about 15 or 16 was asked to babysit for some little girls in a town about little old country town about 15 miles from us. Her folks and my folks were real good friends. And these little girls had just been given uh, tricycles, and they lived in this little town that had very few sidewalks. And the first night after those tricycles there, that they had been given, uh, they were having a prayer before they went to bed, and my sister said they thanked God for the sidewalks. You know, we need to be that simple and grateful and appreciative. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now, quench not the Spirit. Some say that could only apply in the first century when the Holy Spirit worked directly in revealing the Scriptures through the apostles, John 16, 13. But first of all, let's notice something. That statement, quench not the Spirit, proves the Holy Spirit is a person and not an inanimate it. Don't ever again refer to the Holy Spirit as it. I've heard people say, I don't know much about it. The Holy Spirit. Well, you don't even know to speak correctly. Jesus said, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Referring to the Holy Spirit, John 16, 13. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah 63, 10, 
Vex not the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a personality who can be quenched, vexed, grieved. Grieve not the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. Don't ever refer to the Holy Spirit as inanimate. He is a part of the Godhead as much as the Father and the Son. The last verse of 2 Corinthians 13, chapter 13, verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28:19. He is eternal, the eternal Spirit, Hebrews 9:14. He has always been. Some of my brethren teach a doctrine that leads me to believe that they think the Holy Spirit was born on the day of Pentecost and died at the end of the first century. I don't believe that. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in us, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. We need to quit impersonalizing the Holy Spirit. He's just eternal, just as divine, just as much a person, personality as the Father and the Son. In fact, in Ephesians 4, there's one God, there's one Lord, there's one Spirit. All equally mentioned there. So that's one thing I learned from quench not the Spirit. But what would be probably the direct application? Well, if the Holy Spirit came to guide the apostles into all truth, and Jesus said that in John 16, 13, then anyone who would have a disdain for any part of the Scriptures would be trying to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. I have some brethren today that don't want me to preach on giving because they're stingy. I have some brethren today who don't want me to preach the whole counsel of God, Acts 20 and 27, on dancing and drinking and immodesty, especially that last point. Very little preaching done on immodesty anymore. It's a tragedy that some people come to the church house in shorts. We are living in a time that is so disrespectful and so immodest and so vulgar. I'm still going to have to preach that if the whole brotherhood's that way. I've still got to preach the truth. Or I'll quench the Spirit. I can't pick and choose what I can preach and be a gospel preacher. I don't want to do despite to the Spirit of grace, Hebrews 10, 26 and following. We quench the Spirit when we withhold anything the Holy Spirit reveals. Why, there are brethren all over the metroplex that have a wall-eyed fit if I preached on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but I'm going to have to preach on it. Some own kin folks are in an adulterous relationship, but that doesn't change the Bible. They need to be changed, not the Bible. But we have some brethren who love to have it so. When we water it down, don't preach plainly. I'm bringing my kin folks tonight. You want me to quench the Spirit to accommodate your kin folk that aren't Christians? How are they ever going to be Christians if I quench the Spirit? If I withhold the plan of salvation? I don't expose error. You don't love your loved ones, do you? I love them more than you love them. I want to preach the truth to them. Quench not the Spirit. Do we want the whole counsel of God? Paul said, I kept back nothing that was proper unto you. Acts 20, verse 20. And then the next verse, despise not prophesyings. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37, at the end of three chapters on the nine miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that confirmed the Word of God in the first century, he said, If any man claim to be spiritual or a prophet, let him acknowledge the things I have written unto you. These are the commandments of God. Now the last paragraph of the Bible warns not to add to the prophecies in this book. So prophecy had ended at the end of the first century. But teaching that the prophets gave 
confirmed in the New Testament. In the first century, they could despise prophesyings by standing up in the assembly and telling the prophets to hush. They'd already heard more than they wanted. Read 1 Corinthians 14. But today, we despise prophesying by not wanting what the teaching of the Bible says. And there have been people who have stood up in the assembly and stopped a faithful gospel preacher. Tried to. Several years ago in El Paso, a friend of mine was in an assembly where error was taught. I mean abject error. He wasn't even a member of that congregation. But after they had the invitation song, he walked from about midway in the auditorium up to the pulpit and said, I'm a New Testament Christian, and error was taught in this pulpit tonight, and it cannot go untested. We'll leave here in a few moments, and if someone doesn't do what I'm doing, they'll go with a heart full of error. And so he told what the brother had said, quoted what the scripture said that contradicted what he'd said, and said, now we need to go home and search the scripture, see if it's so, and finding it so, refute what you heard here tonight. I admire that fellow for doing that. I believe he had every right under heaven to do it. And people who are spiritually tongue-tied and won't do it will give an account. At Breckenridge, Texas, about five years ago, a man, a professor, a doctoral fellow from one of the colleges spoke to fill in that day. And he was a liberal of the deepest dye, and he stood up there and taught error to a bunch of country bumpkins, he thought. When he got through, an old elder in cowboy boots stood up and said, Brother, you taught error here today, and I've got to correct it before we leave the building. You won't preach here again, and you shouldn't preach anywhere again till you get your words in line with the scriptures. He said, as a, one of the shepherds of this flock, I cannot let it go unheeded. And there this old country bumpkin with cowboy boots set things right. We need 10,000 men like that scattered everywhere. Otherwise, we'll go off despising prophesying and quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, can I prove that a parallel to despise not prophesying is to refuse the true teaching of God in a hurry? Second Peter 2 verse 1. There were false prophets among the people, even as there should be false teachers among you. So when we accept false teaching and reject true teaching, we're despising the work of the Holy Spirit, and the teaching of God's Word. Many false prophets have already gone out into the world. Guard against them. 1 John 4, 1-3. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, False prophets will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. I was asked to speak at Abilene a few years ago. Oh, not in that main auditorium for several thousand people. They always put guys like me off somewhere else. There were about a hundred people there, some teachers, some administrators, some members of the board of the trustees that I'd gone to college with and knew well. They gave me three lessons in one day on New Testament Christianity, or the message of the New Testament. And my first one that morning was, the early morning, was the message of the New Testament is Christ. The second one was the message of the New Testament is the Church of Christ. The third one was the message is Christian living. When the second one started, I said, if error can be taught on this campus, and it is, then surely I can teach the truth here. It got real quiet. I said, I'm not going to generalize. I'm going to tell you the error that was taught, the scriptures that contradicted, and what the Bible does say on that matter. 
it got real quiet. And I did exactly that. The year before, one of the professors of Bible and Greek out there had talked to be him if we had women preachers. A woman might could even be an elder. He wasn't sure miraculous gifts had ceased or that the Bible was complete. So I just went to 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 12 and showed that he had taught error and I was there to teach the truth. I doubt I'll ever be invited back even to speak to 100 people. One time they put me in a little deal that'd seat about 125 and we wound up 275 people sitting on the floor, leaning against the windows, against the wall. The point is, if you can do a little good here and there, you ought to do it. But people can still quench the spirit and despise prophesying if we let them. And then, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Now, how are we going to do that? What will be the standard that we go by to see if we prove all things and hold fast that which is good? That to be the scriptures. They search the scriptures daily to see if these things be so. The noble Bereans, Acts 17, 11. Brethren, I commend you to God in the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. Acts 20, verse 32. The only way we can prove all things spiritually is by the word the Holy Spirit gave, guiding the apostles into all truth. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 21. So the only way I can prove all things and hold fast that which is good is to know the Bible. Search the scriptures. Preach the truth. It can't be by human opinion. You know what aggravates me? And even men that I thought had more judgment than that, they'll quote what C.S. Lewis said to prove a point. Instead of what Paul said and Moses said and Christ said and Peter said and Jude said. Why not the 40 writers of the 66 Bible books? Let that be our background proof. I'm set for the defense of the gospel, Paul said, Philippians 1.17. That's how we prove all things and hold fast that which is good. Not by what Brother So-and-So said at Possum Trot at a camp meeting in 1938. Not by what Brother So-and-So wrote in his commentary 10 years ago. Or what Johnson's notes said 50 years ago. What's the Bible say? Not even by what Alexander Campbell said or Barton W. Stone. What does the Bible say? That's the only way you can prove all things and hold fast that which is good. It even by what... I said in the pulpit last Sunday, unless I backed it up with the Word of God in context, what Max will say today, what does the Bible say? And gospel preachers want it that way. I've never asked anybody to believe what I believe because I said it. Every boy in the school of preaching that I've ever taught, and I've taught over a thousand now in four different schools of preaching, will tell you that I always say the first day, don't take a single thing I say or any of these other teachers say without searching the Scriptures to see if it's so. I said, and when the day comes and when you walk out that door, you have to sign a piece of paper that say, says, I agree with everything that guy said. Until I do that, know the point is, search the scriptures. And if I do that, boot me out and get the Bible in. What does the Bible say? Only way you can prove all things. I have some brethren who are so wedded to what their favorite preacher said 30 years ago that if I contradict what he said, not what the Bible said, but what he said the Bible said. They have a wall-eyed fit, break out in a rash. We're not here to defend any preacher, any man, any school, any group of men, or any group of teachers in any school. What does the Bible say? And then, I guess, the one that's overlooked the most, abstain from all appearance of evil. Someone says, most translations now say every form of evil. There's no difference. I've heard people say it doesn't mean from the very appearance of evil. 
You know what they, why they say that? Because they want to see how worldly they can be. They want to see how near to the world they can get and still hold credentials as a Christian. But we don't see how close to the cliff and the abyss of ruin we can get. We hug the bank of righteousness on the other side. Abstain from all appearance of evil and all appearance of every form of evil. I never thought I'd live to see the day that some of my brethren would defend the drinking of alcoholic beverages in a Bible class. I'd live long enough to see it. I never thought I'd see divorce and remarriage so rampant, unscriptural in the church, but I've lived to see it. I never thought I'd see the immodesty that so many members of the church dress in, but I have. I've lived to see it. And one reason is preachers haven't used 1 Thessalonians 5.22 enough and applied it. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from, flee from, run from iniquity. We are running toward it. We are very worldly people today. Might as well admit it. And the only way we're ever going to correct it is to obey this passage. Abstain from all appearance of evil. We talk about peer pressure and our poor young people, and we pray for them like it's a tragedy. They had to be Christians in the midst of such popular environment. When I was growing up, we had that reversed. Instead of peer pressure, we were talking about our example and influence upon others. Instead of pressured by our peers, we tried to show them Christianity so they'd obey the truth. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, I'm so sorry you're a young man. I just pray for you that you're so persecuted. He said, let no man despise thy youth, but be thine example of the believers. 1 Timothy 4.12. And when we return to that emphasis, we'll be nearer the Bible than we are now. I have never felt sorry for young people in the church because they couldn't dance and drink and dress immodestly. Who would want to do that and claim to be a Christian at the same time? I feel sorry for... Parents who compromise with the world and let their children be like their neighbors. That's who I feel sorry for. We need to challenge young people to study the Bible and live the Christian life, be an example, and develop into preachers and teachers and deacons and elders. That's what the church needs to be doing instead of providing replacements for secular entertainment. We're never going to have elders in the next generation if we don't start doing that. We've got a mistaken concept. And then what is the result of all of this? I pray, God, your whole body, soul, and spirit be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You practice these rules for Christian living and it'll happen. Yes, you want me to discuss the difference in soul and spirit. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is discern of the thought and intent of the heart. Now the point, what is the difference, the distinction in soul and spirit? It may surprise you the answer, the total Bible view of this. The word spirit is more important than the word soul in the Bible. The eternal part of man that never dies is the spirit. Now sometimes soul and spirit are used interchangeably in the Bible, and that's what makes it a little difficult. But the fact of the matter is predominantly, the soul is that animation of life. God breathed into his nostrils a breath of, breath of life, and man became a living soul. The beginning of the book of Genesis. I think it's Genesis 35:18 that says that uh, when a person died, his soul departed from him. 
But in 1 Kings 17, when the widow's son came back to life, his soul came back into it. So basically, the soul is that animation of life, that breath of life that distinguishes between being alive and dead. Sometimes, again, the word soul is used synonymously with the eternal part of man that never dies, the spirit. But basically, dominantly, the word spirit is that eternal part of man that will never die, that will spend eternity in heaven or hell. But the scriptures are able to make a distinction between even soul and spirit. The Bible is very discerning, very perceptive. So man is a triune being, if you please body, that outward tabernacle of clay. We know if this earthly house of our tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. So we have the physical body, Jesus tabernacled in the flesh, John 1, 14, we beheld him, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know what that outward body is that decays and goes back to the dust. The body returns the dust from whence it came, the spirit to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Uh, Hebrews 12, 23, you're in the church of the firstborn, whose names are enrolled in heaven with the spirits of just men made perfect. So when the bodies come from the grave, when Jesus comes, John 5, 28 and 29, 1 Thessalonians 3, 13 says, the spirits of men, the spirit returned to God who gave it, meets them in the air and are reunited body and spirit for the final judgment day and for heaven or hell. I believe that's an overall Bible view of the difference in soul and spirit, and the word spirit is the more important word. Though again, sometimes soul and spirit are used interchangeably. But when there is a distinction, that's the distinction. You've listened well.